I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This is Nico from Nico Network on Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Tina Butterwolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh -huh. Rebel Radio is going down. Would you say Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio. Today, we're going to learn how to be great at building relationships. My guest is my good friend, Nico Gofar. Most people just know him as Nico. He's, uh, he's considered like a connector, a celebrity wrangler, an A-list party planner. He, he definitely knows more famous people than you'll ever know. And if you happen to be a billionaire, I know we have a lot of billionaires listening to this show. Uh, he's a guy that you want to create exclusive experiences for you and your friends and family. Really interesting career. He's going to take us through the history of how he got to this point and how he uh, really is so great at, at what he calls collecting people. Surprisingly, for somebody in his job, he says that someone's title and paycheck should make no difference in the way that you treat them. I love that philosophy and I love uh, the stories he tells about how that all came together for him. So make sure you tune in. Listen to our interview right after our EDM.com track of the week.
All right, that's our EDM.com track of the week. That's NDVA with a track called Memories. Shout out to EDM.com for giving us such great music to play on this show every week. If you like that one, go to SoundCloud.com slash Deep House and look for more just like it. And now let's get into the interview with Nico. I'm a, I'm a bit of a Nike obsessive. I have a lot. We could talk about this as well. Go ahead. Talk about it now. We'll start Why with the, the shoe no. business. No, whatever. You you just started. I've never done this before. So. No, but what were you, you know saying about Nike? That when you're my size, yeah. you can't walk into a store and buy like jeans or shirts off the peg. Right. So you buy shoes. Yeah. So I have a ridiculous shoe collection <laughs> of, of all types of shoes because don't look at this. Look at that. Yeah. That's why we roll with decent shoes, right? Yeah, I like that. I, I've, I've always found, like, you can get by with, like, you know, plain stuff if the shoes look right. So my sister, as you may or may not know, she's the editor at large of British Vogue. Yeah. And she has a theory. You know when you see an ad and it's a person wearing head-to-toe, uh, like, Prada, yeah. suit Prada shoes? That's not style. No. Style's when you can wear, like, raggedy jeans, a nicest shirt, the yeah. shoes are good, a good watch, whatever. Yeah. And it's, you, you make up the collection of, of things that show you off. Not show you off, but yeah. represent you. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't wear jewelry, I wear watches. Right. So I have a watch collection. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, just don't look in the heels anymore. It's just, just it's not <laughs> a good look. No, that's good. Uh, I, I, I'm surprised to hear that from Vogue, but... Yeah, like bec it. because... It's the art of style. What is style? Yeah. I mean, remember when Rick Rubin used to roll around town? Here's this guy, hadn't shaved, hair yeah, was out homeless. here, overweight, uh, white T-shirt and jeans, and then yeah. rocks up in the Bentley. In a, yeah. You know, it's not about... The other one that does that is... Um, oh, I'm blanking. He's uh, one, one of those... Another one of those minted dudes. Is that right? That just, he's jeans and a white T-shirt and stuff. So you would pay no attention to him. Yeah. So I kind of like that inverted snobbery of... Well, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I remember, uh, you know, Dante Ross, he's a guy that he worked for, for Def Jam early yes, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A&R yeah. guy. <clears throat> he's an old friend of mine. And I heard yeah. him tell a story once about, like, when he first got his job at, at Def Jam and they sent him off on the, some assignment to go... He had to, like, go deliver something, basically. Mm. And he got all dressed up. I don't know if he put on a suit or right. whatever. But he shows up, Russell sees him, he's like, never again. Yeah. Right? Like, that's not, you got to be you instead of trying to be who you think they want you to be. I had that experience. Yeah? My first ever interview for a job. I was maybe 16 something. And I, okay. I, what was the job? Well, so I knew from the age of about 13 that I wanted to be around music and that sort of stuff. So about 15, 16, because in England you could leave school around then. Mm-hmm. And I used to hang out at uh, studios uh, for a long time. So I thought, okay, I'll go get a job. I'll go for an interview at a job, a uh, studio. So I, my father, who was a really successful, proper businessman, was all about suits and hair and sure. shoes and, and he, he put together. Like yeah. he was always at the bar, a really smart gent. And so I went for an interview at a recording studio 
in a three-piece suit and tie. Yeah, proper lad. A proper lad. And I get there, and I remember the guy going, so what experience do you have? And in my head, in hindsight, I was like, well, I'm 15. I know how to make a wicked don't, cup of tea. Which don't you is see the suit? Pretty much what I'm going to be doing for the next few years. I can make a mean cup of tea, and I read all the right magazines. Yeah. And I was so traumatized, because that happened at, I remember the studios, and one of them was Air. Um, and I just went, right, I'm never wearing a tie again. Yeah. And for years, I wouldn't wear a tie and just because I was so like, as he said, wrong situation, wrong outfit. You didn't sure. read. It's like what we have to do now in, in, in our gigs. Yeah. You've got to read a room. Yeah. Right. You've got to read a room. You've got to interpret how are we going to handle this. Yeah. And I think that's part of how I learned to from that experience. Read a room. That's that's great. That's a great lesson. Mm. So, so that's a good place to start. I want to I want we're going to what I want to do is kind of go back to the beginning and we'll work our way up and you know you asked kind of what are we doing on the show and you know part of the reason why I do this show is because I think that a lot of my friends have really interesting journeys and uh and you don't get to interview your friends like there's so much that I don't even know about you even though we've been friends now like 20 years yeah yeah and um so we're gonna uncover it all not actually English <laughs> I keep waiting for the real, <laughs> the real voice to come out. Des Moines, the Nebraska. Yeah, exactly. So you said you you knew early on you wanted to be around music. Tell me, how did that happen? How did you know that? And specifically, can you remember the first record that made you feel that way? So I don't know if it was a record per se. I. My earliest memories were my father played piano and in a very English way, we weren't very communicative in the feeling department, which is kind of standard English thing. Sure. But from a really young age, if he was on the piano, I could tell you exactly what his mood was or what emotionally was going on. Oh, wow. And so... And later in life, when when my parents separated and he was going through a rough time, I remember a very vivid time that we're in his house. He's playing playing piano and he played a lot of blues and jazz and stuff. And uh, he was playing. I was sitting next to him on the on the piano stool, and we both started crying. Mm. Nothing was said. Yeah, we knew exactly what was going on. Wow. Um, but going back to when we were young, when I was young, um, I'm that annoying kid that started with chopsticks on pots and pans. Uh-huh. Um, and banging on things and tapping on you things. You still do that. I, exactly. I've got in the car right now, I have drumsticks, shakers, and little tambourine finger things. Amazing. Because it's just been that nasty habit. So at about age 10, I got my first drum kit. Okay. Um, the first record I remember distinctly um, playing drums to was in the garage at our house in the country. The big... 70s headphones uh-huh. with the curly cord yeah. to the record player playing to Band on the Run by Wings. Oh, cool. I love that. Um, the memorable albums, I remember things like when I'm much younger, obviously the Grease album, mm-hmm. come on. And then I'm old. Uh, am I old? I'm old. A couple of years. But there was a, a kid's show called The Wombles. 
in oh, England. Oh, I didn't know that. And the Wombles had a double album thing, and I remember getting being so excited about him, the double album, because in those days, kids, you won't remember this, but you used to read the liner notes, yeah. you had the pictures. For sure. And while you listened to the record. Um, it's funny, because we were talking about this to somebody else, that the thing that I think is missing, well, it's completely gone now, but the thing about the passion that we used to have around vinyl was you put it on, you sat down, and you had to listen to it mm-hmm. all the way through because mm-hmm. you couldn't just skip through it. Yeah. And I always remember saying that, you know, you'd go, oh, track three, it's a bit weak, you know, a bit weak, you know. By the third time you've listened to the record, track three is the one that's now stuck <laughs> with you because you had to listen to it yeah. and B-sides and stuff. But yeah. So I, I, um, I started young. I got out of school early. I was in the... I was in the band at school. We had a marching band, mm. and I was a drummer in the band. Mm. Um, but my brother's best friend, who's now a big composer, um, had a studio in London. It was, you know, he was a session guy back then. You know, actually, when my brother and he met, he was seventeen. There was seventeen. He was a guitar player and a sort of some dodgy band out of uni or something yeah. in England. Yeah. And so I would hang out when they were, when he's like, oh, I've got to drag my little brother around. We'd go to this guy's house and he would have synths everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I just got the bug of synth stuff, the tech, the tech side. I'm not, like, unlike you guys, like I'm not a DJ, I'm not a, a, a fan in the traditional sense of music. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with the production of music, mm-hmm. how it's made, how it's put together. So yeah. I, my Early years were spent hanging out either at his house, fiddling with like Junos and the early Roland stuff and yeah. the the mini Moogs, memory Moogs, those stuff. Yeah. And then after that experience I told you about of, of going to studios and trying to get a job in a suit and stuff, he was like, well, why don't you come and help me, you know, be my right hand assistant? Okay. Yeah. I was like, yeah, because I can make a mean cup of coffee. You yeah. Know? Um, but what was brilliant about the, the 80s was it was the the birth of synth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, after the 70s synth stuff where it was room-sized stuff, right. we're now into the, the Rolands and the Prophet Fives and the... Sure, like electronic. The, but the original stuff, which yeah. to me was just the best. Because yeah. in London at the time, you know, it was, we were around bands like Ultravox and Depeche Mode and... and Duran Duran and bands like that that heavily were influenced by synths and stuff. So I got caught up in, we were fortunate because he had a thing called the Fairlight. Okay. And the Fairlight was the, the first polyphonic sequencing computer ever. Okay. Uh, Synclavier was also around about the same time, but the Fairlight was this massive, um, you know, the, the actual computer part was about five foot by two foot. It was massive. And yeah. part of my job was to lug that around at sessions and stuff. And um, it was amazing for, for musicians because you could actually now sequence without it being pulse sequencing. Right. Um, many years later when Facebook came out, he, he was on Facebook and to test out whether it was him or somebody from his company just being fake uh, Facebook, I go, so is this you or is this somebody from the studio? He goes, Fairlight, Stairs, Trident. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, it's him. 
so in the 80s we were doing a session at a studio, studio in London called Trident and the elevator was small and the flight case for this computer was massive so I was like oh, I've got to take this down the stairs right so me being you know adventurous again it's heavy yeah. it's about a hundred thousand pounds worth of computer uh, dollars pounds you know oh, yeah, money yeah. wise yeah and so I in my in inevitable wisdom go okay this will be easy so I saw boom boom oh. first couple of stairs boom 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 ah bugger and it it goes <laughs> and it goes flying down the stairs so the, the interesting thing was when I took it to the place that services them, you take it in there, and there's just a room full of these things being yeah. serviced because I don't think I was the only person, but I had a couple of, couple of mishaps. You're like, it's like the, the, the genius part. You're like, I, I don't know how this I happened. Know how it this just stopped working. Uh, I blew up a memory move by putting, uh, we're in a session, and I plugged it in. In England, we have 210 volts, yeah. or whatever, 240, or whatever. And after I plugged it in, smelled the burning, I go, what's that transformer there for? <laughs> ah, okay. Um... So I started working with him in studio. Yeah. So um, engineering, programming. So did you know at this point, I mean, like you said, your, your father, you know, you came from a pretty traditional family. You know, I think your father had been very successful, right? Yeah, but in chocolate yeah. and advertising, billboard stuff. Yeah. Nothing exciting for me. No, no, no. But, but what, what was the, did you know at that moment that this was going to be your path and was that like was that okay with your family was well i'm 50 and i still don't know what my path is but you know as close as it gets um my my luck on that was that i'm the youngest of three so so they figured you know by the time it got to me well by the time it got to me and i give credit to my sister but because my brother had to toe the line and go to university and follow the family business and my sister is very independent and very strong-willed and <clears throat> grew up a fast-paced life. We grew up in central London. It was pretty fast-paced anyway. But she she really, she's earned her stripes to be who she is now at Vogue and stuff. But, um, yeah. you know, 18, she was dating Brian Ferry and stuff. So my parents kind of just, it was beaten out of them. She beat them, you know. They were like, just... Oh, Fine. Yeah. So by the time it came to me, I'm like, hi, they're like, and you are, you know. Um. Sure. Hey, shout out to Dropbox.com. If you're in Austin this week, make sure you come by my live taping at the Dropbox podcast studio. I'll be doing an interview live on stage, courtesy of Dropbox. That's Sunday, March 12th in Austin, Texas. For those that are listening after March 12th, Watch our iTunes and our SoundCloud for the episode Live from Austin by Dropbox. It, it was like a real job. No, yeah. I was out every, because it came out of my lifestyle. I was yeah. out every night at the club. The club scene in London was amazing in the 80s. It of course. was just, you know, my peers have gone on to, uh, you know, Tom Dixon is a legendary designer. There's so many people that have come out of the crowd that I came from. Well, what, what, what was a first big club night or, or club mm. night that you remember the one that was the most in fact it was called titanic okay and it was in this uh that's before the movie obviously oh yeah after this the was, ship this was early again early 80s yeah and it was behind a place called barclay square which is a very posh part of town mayfair yeah. and i think it was a deserted theater or something and you would go downstairs and there were bands like again my friends had this band called funkapolitan 
that uh, you can track each member of that band have gone on to do pretty interesting stuff. It was a real, you know, it was the days where obviously you didn't pay to get in. It was, you know, if they knew your face, you were in. Um, and it was fashion and it was music and it was up and everyone was up and coming, you know, as in mm -hmm. the, the, the energy was like, we're going to do something, which is really kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and it was a who's who would show up there. Like if there was, I remember distinctly having a discussion with Green from Scritti Politti about oh, wow. tech stuff. And I must have been really young. So I'm sure Titanic was the first one. Then we had the original Café de Paris which was, again, that really set my tone of music, which was eclectic in the sense that he would play James Brown, then go into uh, an Eartha Kitt song, then go into a, a um, Africa Bambata, mm -hmm. then go into uh, Nina Simone. I mean, it was just this really eclectic, you know, chucking a bit of blancmange, you know. Sure. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I always tell that story that, you know, there's... Open format now is a thing. Is that and, what it's called? Yeah, like, so, you know, guys, I don't know, a lot of the guys we know, like, that play what they feel is going to work in the room at right. the time, right, is you'd sort of consider that open format. Now that's a genre or a style of DJing. Right. For 20 years, everything's been so genre-specific. Yeah. But yeah. before that, when we grew up, you know, and I'm... Yeah. It was that. It was you. You play what you feel in the moment. Yeah, and yeah. To keep the room moving, because I think yeah. that's the art of. I think we've had this discussion before about the art of a DJ. Yeah, is knowing either to. I'm going to play, as you said, play my genre specific thing, and if you like, you like it. If not, tough shit. Sure. Or the art of a real DJ, which is to read a room and mm -hmm. keep the flow going and understand what is who his audience is. Yeah, but also give them something mm -hmm. new and different to sort of. Play with i think that was kind of fun so i want to i gotta tell a quick story because yeah you know we haven't even gotten to what you do and yeah yeah and why why you're here but um this is all fascinating stuff but you know it gets better so you know when when i tell people if i introduce you to somebody and like I'm like you know he's this you know i say he's you know he's called the king of the a-list and you know he he does all this amazing stuff with celebrities and experiences and very cool stuff but but I always tell this story because you know like you I grew up in the clubs and then when I got into the business you know I was out every night and so I learned early on that you know I got to know every DJ in town mm -hmm. and I got to know a lot of the promoters so I could get on any guest list mm -hmm. in the city when I was not anymore now I can't I can't get, really, can't yeah. get into Denny's yeah but yeah. uh but in my 20s I could get in any anywhere yeah or I should say I could get on the list. Yeah. Now getting in, whole different, whole different ball game. It's a different ball game, yeah. right? And so I would go and it, oh, you know, I'm on the list, so and so's list, and then I, I would either walk right in or yeah. you'd wait and argue for 20 minutes yeah, yeah. or who knows what, depending on a whole bunch of things. And then when I met you, I remember right after we met, uh, you're like, "Meet me at." Uh, oh, now I'm trying to remember where it was. I think it was at Hollywood Athletic Club. Oh God! Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, somewhere around there. Right. And so we meet in the parking lot, and we're walking through, and I noticed we didn't stop walking until we were sitting down. Right. 
like right up to the front and you we 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 paused for a split second to shake the bouncer's hand and it didn't hit me until a couple more times we went out that what you did that I didn't get until later is you knew every bouncer every doorman yeah and I know you knew you also knew the guys that yeah, ran the yeah. place whatever but you knew the guy out front and so there was no hassle with the list they were yeah. never checking your the list for your name yeah. because you knew the, and and to, still today that's like such a brilliant thing it, it, that never occurred to me. Not intentional, but yeah. it's it, my father gave me a poem when I was about 13, which is If by Kipling. Mm. And, and, and I'll paraphrase it because I can't, obviously can't remember it, although I have it on the wall. It talks about if you can hold your head amongst kings and amongst the working man, sure. then you're a man. Yeah. Right? That sort of premise of yeah. that if you differentiate between someone, because I watch it all the time, you know, people rocking up to the door talking to the doorman like they're dirt going i know the owner of course well if you can't get past the doorman yeah. it doesn't really matter who you know yeah. so it wasn't intentional i just from look i learned all all my uh, uh hospitality skills from my mother and it was you catch more bees with honey sure. and yeah you know when we get to when we do what we do when something goes horrendously wrong screaming doesn't fix it Finding people to talk to and, and go, hey, can you help me fix this? Yeah. Usually is the things that gets you out of. It's got me out of all sorts of models where if you just remember that there is, you know, I get annoyed with people in Hollywood who think that their title on their card mm -hmm. or their paycheck means that they're different because it, 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 it doesn't. You know, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of anti-bullying. I don't like bullies. And I think people who think that they are sure. better than somebody. Yeah. So it's pet peeve. But. Um, I think it's just that literally I was fortunate that the jobs that I had going back early was, it was, so what can I do that you're allowed to stay up late, misbehave and hang out with, you know, cool people and hot models? Yeah. Oh, it seems like nightlife, you know? Yeah. Um, cause it all started by accident cause I'd be out all the time. Like, you know, we'd see each other out Yeah. and yes, my friends would be hosting them, but um, I think my first L.A. memory, which was pretty cool, uh, as I got here and I thought, OK, well, the way to establish, you know, I'm in a new city. I've only been here six months. What could I do? I'll throw a party. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine's dad had a house up on Bendit Canyon and um, he was selling it. So it was empty. I said, can I throw a party? They're like, yeah, this is 90, somewhere 90. Mm. And... Um, so I called everyone I knew because in those days you had to call people because we didn't have email and stuff and, yeah. and even made little flyers on, you know, you print out and, yeah. um, and we had about 600 people. And what, what was the party? Was it, it just, was just, it was old school style house, but where <coughs> he said I yeah. could have the house. I got a friend to do the bar, just which meant we went to Costco and bought booze and somebody did it. And mm -hmm. a friend of mine DJed, great DJ. My, any of my parties is all about the music and it's not about how fabulous, my own ones. Sure. Um, but, the bit we left out was uh, in England. So I worked in studios, worked a few other things. I worked in radio promotion for a long time. Right. And so worked with lots of fun bands. And again, because I was part of the scene. That was an Anglo plugin? Anglo plugin, yeah. Okay. So we worked with, you know, tons of bands. But one of them was a thing called Boogie Box High, which was a secret project that George Michael did for his cousin. Where, oh, wow. I don't even know yeah, that. Yeah, they did uh, Jive Talking was the song.
and um, the backing vocal sounded remarkably like a certain George Michael, but it wasn't credited. Mm. But I knew him socially because we'd be out in the clubs and stuff. Sure. So when I got to L.A., um, he was living here, and so he came to the party. So literally, it was like, who the hell's this English guy? He's 20-something years old. He's got 600 people at a party, and George Michael's here. What's wow. going on? Yeah. Um, and then George and Michael Lippmann were also investors in the Roxbury. Uh-huh. So I used to live on DeLong Parade, just up the road from it. Mm-hmm. And I get a call, hey, we're going to the opening of this club. You want to come with? I'm like, hmm, 20-something years old, rocking into the opening with him. Yes. Kind of. And it was like you said, the, the, the crowd parted and I flowed in behind the, and the VIP room at the Roxbury in the 90s oh, yeah. was off the chain. There wasn't paparazzi. There were three people. Yeah. Paparazzi. So it was great. So I took that party and people would say, how do you get these people you know, to the party? I go, well, they're just friends of mine. So every year I would do a Christmas slash late birthday party mm. at my friend Irving's house up in the Truesdale Estates. Mm-hmm. It started off with, you know, 600, 800 people. Next year, 1,000 people. Next year, 1,500 people. We stopped it when it hit 2,500. And that, again, was great DJs. Sure. Sean Perry, different people coming and play. Spend all the money on security. Yeah. And inside just bar and nothing, right? Yeah. Just great people. Yeah. And and because we, it was, were people paying to come? No, hell no. No, no, no. no. This is yeah. the thing that I you know, did every year. Yeah, so this wasn't a business. No, no, no. This right. was, you know, this was, um, in hindsight, this was laying the foundation. But it was, because I was already working at the studio out here, because yeah. I ended up, we're all over the shop, but I ended up, when I came out here, going to work for the guy I worked for in England, because he okay. had now moved out here, okay. become an established composer. Yeah. He's now currently probably the biggest, you know, undoubtedly out here. And so that's Hans Zimmer. Yeah. So yeah. I was employee number one at Media Ventures, which was Hans Zimmer's studio. Well, it wasn't even his studio back then. We had rented half of a place called Wilder Brothers on Santa Monica Boulevard. Okay. Cleared out the control room and put his gear all in flight cases. Yeah. And part of my job was to reset up the rig and rewire it. And <clears throat> so I ended up running sort of operations amongst everything else. And at night then would leave and go to the Olive because the Olive was open till late. Mm-hmm. So um, it was very cool. Um, but I would do this I'd do this party and as it got bigger and bigger, people go, how do we get these people to come to our events? I was like, I don't know, pay me. you know. And then it was like, well, how do we get our product into the hands of these people? Because yeah. any band that I'd worked with, because after I left Hans, I, when I started Nico Network, one of the first things I was doing was artist relations, places like Warner's, independent mm-hmm. artist relations. So I would produce big record release parties. I'd produce um, end of tour events. I would do during the tour hospitality stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I would invite everyone to come to this party. So it was a real sort of who's who of both artists, executives, club people, people nothing to do with entertainment which is what I love so you would have in a room some of the biggest people like lawyers and mm-hmm. music, talking mm-hmm. to somebody and find out they're the busboy for my favorite restaurant restaurant yeah. and you would see this great sort of synergy of people just talking about stuff not about so what do you do and right. can I talk to you are you important enough right because it was so hard to get in yeah Everyone was, there's no VIP room, everyone's, everyone's equal in yeah. that room. And it was a really good vibe. 
and that's to me what clubs used to be like and what parties used to be like. Totally. So, so I want to, there's a couple of things I want to dig into yeah. there, but, but I want to take a quick step back. Um, why did they call you the bagel man? Ha ha. Um, so, you know, I've got a face for radio, you know, I'm a, I'm a little, little bigger than the average bear. So I like my food. So back in the mid eighties, um, there were some really great clubs, but like here, they closed at sort of one-ish, two-ish. So there was a really good movement of good underground sort of parties. Mm. And my favorite one was that a friend of mine, Phil Dirtbox, he had a, his parents had a restaurant up by Charing Cross Road. And so we'd all end up back there and everyone for some reason would have the munchies. And uh -huh. There was a lot of smoke in the room and stuff. Strange. So, I don't know, it's crazy. So I, I never really liked smoking. It was really weird. I wasn't, so I said, all right, I'll be back in a minute. And a little, I had a little red uh, golf at the time. Uh -huh. And I drove down to the east end of London to a place called Brick Lane. And in Brick Lane, they have a 24-hour bagel bake. And usually at three in the morning, it's a line of people outside because the fresh, hot bagels yeah. were cooking. So I thought, right, I'll buy a bag of bagels with cream cheese and smoked salmon. So I bought the bag. I drove back to the club, and I sold them for cash, right, just out of the bag. I was like, oh, this is good. <laughs> So next week I drove down there and I bought a bag of bagels, a tub of cream cheese and a slab of salmon. Yeah. So cheaper. Yeah. Go back and at the restaurant I, in the kitchen, I made them myself and yeah. I sold them again for cash. Yeah. I was like, well, this is good. So then I thought, right. So out of my mother's kitchen, I started making, you know, buying the bagels yeah. and making them and wrapping them in cling foil and then going outside the clubs that I'd already be going to anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd have a big old uh, overcoat and I'd have bagels in there, so I'd go into the VIP room of the limelight. And, oh, inside you know, the club. Oh, sometimes, but in, uh, surreptitiously, right? And That's then, like, great. Boy George or people like that would be in the, I'd chuck them bagels. But then I had exchange students yeah. who were standing outside. Yeah. Now, I went to school for a bit in America. Mm -hmm. I say a bit because me and school never really got on. Um, Here in L.A.? Uh, no, it was actually in Boston, just outside oh, okay. Boston, an alternative high school there. Uh-huh. Uh, the good kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I made it through SATs. Didn't quite make it past that, but they sent me back to England. Yeah. Another story. So anyway, um, I'd have exchange students that would have wicker baskets with, because now I'd got the bagel bake to make them, wrap them, put my logo on. Yeah. Because having gone to school in America, I was all Americanized. So it's all about the baseball hat with the logo. Uh -huh. This is before the internet. This is before anything. Sure. So we had stickers, and I'd stick stickers all over town, like you'd stop at a light, and there's the Big Bang Bagel Company. Uh-huh. And it was just a goof. It was, it was, it only lasted, I want to say maybe nine months, 10 oh, months, wow. right? Yeah. Because I got offered a tour and I went on tour. I was like, that's was more fun. Just to go do merch, I think, on a tour. Okay. It was, I don't know. It was, it was the 80s. Things were a bit blurry for me back then. Oh, I can't remember. remember. What okay. was, I don't remember much of the 80s. I but get But the it. Big Bang Bagel so, Company, we had aprons with the logo on it and uh, the kids would go down Kings Road and Fulham Road into stores and sell bagels then. But every night, they would be outside all the clubs that I would normally be at. Yeah. Now, were they the freshest bagels by eight, 11 o'clock at night? No, but it was cash in the 80s. So it didn't last long, but literally for years and years and years, I'd be in New York at the New Music Seminar. Somebody would come and go, are you the bagel man? I was like, Yes. So listen, at <laughs> yeah. least it's, you know, it's it, it made its mark. It was very, very brief, but fantastic. It was, it was a great time in London again. And then why'd you move to LA? Have you seen the weather here? 
Yeah. Literally, I'm as shallow as a kiddie pool. I'm as shallow as a kiddie pool. I came out here for a friend of mine's wedding for a week. And... Is that Adam? Yeah. yeah Adam, yeah. who you know. Our, yeah. our mutual friend. And uh, I came out for their ma- uh, wedding, and I was like, well, this is great. I knew so many people here. And because the great thing about music is it is the international language, right? Yeah. So you can pretty much go to any city in the world and find your people. Yeah. Um, and so London at the time was miserable. It was 89. It was the end of the, it was a recession. It was end of Thatcher. Um, and it was just miserable because I remember distinctly sitting in my flat in London. Um, oh, wait, I came back briefly about for a week or so. I get a phone call from somebody saying, would you be interested in coming out here and just helping, I think it was a video production company, repping directors. I was like, radio promotion, repping directors, same thing, boom, yes. So literally it was a two-day decision in London. Came out here, rented out my flat in London, uh, moved into Adam's old apartment because I had got married. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. I couldn't imagine, at 10 years in LA, I sold my house in London. Mm I was like, I, I'm done. That's, mm-hmm. I'm here. So yeah. I've been here 27 years. Brilliant. From that one, yeah, that one uh, wedding. Yeah. And they're still together. Yeah. Miracle. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. But, uh, yeah, it was good. At a certain point, you started your own thing, Nico yeah. Network. Yeah. Um, which, the way you just described it, I think makes perfect sense, is that people want to be part of your network. So they, brands or whoever, can buy in. and. It actually started a little bit more um, sort of, Maybe it's organic. I, after I left Hans, uh, I went to Fox Music for a bit. Okay. So I worked at Fox Music. That's where I got my uh, visa. Mm. Um, and then on to getting a green card. Once I had that, then I could do what I wanted to do. So I started Nico Network. Initially, as, as you said, it was um, helping people with their lists and access to people because I was out all the time. These people, my friends, mm-hmm. no big deal. This is before people were doing it. Uh, in the sort of way that people do it now. Like the sort of celebrity wrangler yeah, or the Yeah, but back then, you know, we didn't call it. Right. Well, yeah, I have a, that word influencer got just so ruined. But, sure. um Yes, I was one of the first, um, yeah, wranglers, I mm-hmm. suppose, and influencer wranglers. Um, I think there was an article in 1990 or something that Los Angeles Magazine yeah. did a thing, you mean you don't know Nico, which was great. Yeah. And they called me a social network before social networks right. arrived because I collect people. My commodity is people. I, to the point that if you write back in the day, you'd write your number on a beer mat. Mm-hmm. I put that in the database, but I then stick it into a, onto a piece of paper into a ring binder. So yeah. I have everything, every piece of paper I've ever been given. I have every it's, business card. I, I, oh, I have tons and yeah. tons of business cards. It's, yeah. it's quite tragic. It's cool. But no, it's what fun that thing. did was, you know, be able to help people, first of all, you know, enhance their events. Then what would happen was when I was doing artist relations independently for Warners and stuff, we would do these great parties, but it got to the point where, so we would, we would curate the list, but the experience wasn't right. So okay. it yeah. got to the point. If you're just bringing people to someone else's. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's how it evolved. It was, sure. It was then like, well, we've given stuff to these people. We've invited them to your thing, but it's not connecting because we're of the school that if you spend a million dollars on a party room and you invite the wrong people, everyone's like, why am I here? Yeah. Or you go to a dive bar with the right people who are like, I'm not leaving. 
best night you of know, my life. It's best yeah. night, right? Yeah. Hot, sweaty, smoky mm-hmm. bars that we've been to in the day with a great DJ. Great. Versus a million dollar party. Yeah. So that's where I moved into trying to <clears throat> produce the experience as well. So, how, so before that, though, how did you know, how was the decision to start your own company? As a, because before that you'd been working. I mean, I guess the bagel thing, but no, I, you, I, I be, uh, easy. Yeah, I don't play well with with others. Okay, um, and we, and you were conscious of that at the yeah, time. Yeah, I've always been. I've, you know, unfortunately, you know, radio promotion is good because you kind of are out there self selling. Yeah, um, I never worked for a record label. We work with lots of them because mm-hmm. the bureaucracy. The I, I'm a I'm a problem solver. I'm instinctively, if I see a problem, I'll fix it. What I learned, especially at Fox, was the art of a corporation is they put bumps in the road. Yeah. Specifically for people to go around. Sure. People like us see the bump. We go, you know, if you move the bump out of the way, it'd be really clear. Yeah. They don't want us there. Right. Because now they know that we're not uh, controllable. Yeah. Um, and I always like the fact of, I like the fact of being my own, um, do I like the f- being my own boss? Um it goes back and forth. But I know, I, but I know the feeling. But I'm such yeah. uh, I like stuff to go right. And so if I see a problem, I'll go in and fix it. So talk about that for a minute. What, is, what do you not like about being your own boss? Um, that, that when you get to a certain size, maybe I'll get there, that you, you know, what we love about it being our own boss is the creative freedom to do stuff and have great ideas. Yeah. As you get as it gets bigger and you do bigger projects, you have to step back from that and you end up managing people. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I miss, I like being in the trenches. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. um, but the next phase is to find people that mm-hmm. are good at that. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing I think about any, uh, I think any entrepreneur, it's the art of knowing when to let go. Mm. I think is, is a real key, as in right. handing off control to, so if you don't want to do the accounting stuff, find some, somebody that knows what they're doing and trust yeah. that they're doing the best they can do. You know, um, I have trouble with that still, you know. Yeah, um, that's understandable. But it's, I It's understandable, know. especially because, you know, it, it's your name, it's your face, it's your personal relationships yeah. that, that, people are coming for. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think, I think it's a really interesting, you know, if we were in business school, I think this is a fascinating case of like, how do you scale a person? So, okay, this, this comes up a lot. And I think, I think we're starting, we're starting to get there because I've got multiple projects on at the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the big ones that we're doing, so we're doing an incentive travel package for a big tech company and the CEO I've known personally for some time, and he goes, I think I've got something. And so now it's a business deal with him, and yeah. Yeah. we're doing a fabulous trip. We presented four amazing experiences, and he picked one. And what I did was I brought in a couple of my key people mm-hmm. so they could be comfortable early on that this person's probably going to be running right. the package. So yeah. it, it's, it's how do you, because for a long time, remember I said I didn't want to, give up that control because it was all about me and yeah. what I realized is it's not about me it's about it's why it's called Nico Network it's a network of really competent um, experts in their field who understand the ethos of what Nico Network is about mm-hmm. um, 
the name, I hope, at some point becomes as relevant or irrelevant as David Geffen to the Geffen Company, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. where it's just a name. Sure. But at the moment, of course, it's been based around, um, you know, what are the brand, you know, messages. Hopefully, what we give is that if it's a Nico experience, it's going to be, it's going to have a wow factor. It's going yeah. to be, if it's for a, a, a traditional event, it's going to be bulletproof. It's going to be, if there's a problem, we're going to have solved it before you even know it's happened. Yeah. Uh, if it's one of our trips or experiences for a high net worth client, um, it's going to have an element of wow that just because they can afford the jets and the planes and the islands, whatever, we have to build in something that they go, wow. Mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't have to be big, but it's something that we found that if for people that can afford, quote unquote, anything, it's the little things. Sure. I have a client, we're doing Coachella again, we have a client that's coming to Coachella and it's a big production, you know. Um, so give us an example. What, is, what does that mean? We, we've got a, a, a massive house for him okay. that will staff, uh, drivers. Uh, he's got access to wherever he needs to go on site. Um, you know, he's, he, we've got a couple of things that other people aren't getting on site that are great. Um, but the thing he's most excited about is he keeps saying, is there anywhere I can meet group love? Doesn't care about Radiohead, doesn't care about those. Yeah. He goes, I love indie, yeah. up and coming, or sure. good bands. So if you know those people, let me know. Nothing but a devil's dance. Trying to keep saying I feel okay. Telling myself this now for days. Mean man machine. Um, I'm sure we can think But that's it. the thing. Like, we did a thing for another client where we brought 40 guests to LA for a five day uh, event where every day we had something we had dinners and we had access to TV shows and we took them behind the scenes at studios yeah. and then he wanted his favorite band at the time. We did a private show at Sayers Club with his private, uh, favorite band mm. but we had 40 people and he didn't want a bus. So I had 14 SUVs and on a Friday and Saturday night trying to move 14 SUVs around town, nightmare. So I hired three police outriders yeah. so that we had we could stop the traffic. Sure. Why? Because it's LA and we can. Yeah. What was the result? That we didn't lose half the motorcade going to the restaurant. Yeah. And what was the value for the client to feel like the president? Priceless. Mm -hmm. You know? Because yeah. those are the things he's going to go back and tell his friends. Not right. that he took over a hotel and sure. we did this, that, and the other. It yeah. was like, this is something that people can't do. So we try to find that in everything we're doing. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, we're doing, we've got a fun one on this trip that we're about to do, the one that we're not telling on, so hopefully no one's listening. Hopefully this will go afterwards. Yeah, no, no one listens. No one listens to this. Right. Um, no, it's good, it's, it's good we're doing this because I have a lot of billionaires listen to the good, show. Good, good. So is, you're you going to get a, a lot of business out of this. We're, going, we're taking them to Miami, and then we're not telling them. We, we're going to have three seaplanes lined up at the harbor, and we're flying the three seaplanes in, in uh, formation, and landing in Bimini, which is the mm. most westerly Bahama Islands, mm -hmm. Bahamian Islands. And literally the, the planes will then slide up onto the beach, sandy white beach, and they'll get out straight to the, the resort. Because Bimini is seven miles long and 300 amazing. yards wide. So it's, That's amazing. it's just the wow factor that we, we're not telling them. Because Miami, we're going to have a great time. We've yeah. got everything lined sure. up. But how can we do something that's great? Because we'll do, we'll do from a dinner for four people in a simple location to mm -hmm. 4,000 in a weird place. We've done, I think we've done, the biggest one was 4,000 people. It was, uh, it was for a label and 
It was a five-day experience, lots of stuff happening, and a lot of logistics. Like, I, I love the more logistics, the better, you know. Flights, hotels, activations, ground transportation, security details, production, yeah. boom. It's great. I love that. So, so I want to dig into a couple of those things. First of all, you said something earlier that you collect people. Yeah. So teach, teach me how to do that. Um, it's quite simple. Be you. Okay. Because I don't think, um, you know, I saw something the other night that made my skin crawl. I was at an event, it was a foundation thing, and there were a lot of big ballers there, like VCs and money people and power brokers and stuff. And yeah, I, I, was, I was booked that night. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Your, uh, your chair was there. So, yeah. um, and there were, there were these two very, very big people in the tech world talking. And they're, they're friends of mine, but they were in a heated discussion. So I was just standing back, waiting, watching, right? And some guy, don't know who, stormed in. And in the middle of the conversation, like, excuse me, excuse me, are you so-and-so, so-and-so? Here, um, I just wanted to meet you. Here's my card. Can I get your card? I want to follow up with you later. I'm like, if you have no sense of people's space, yeah, you can't be in the people business. Well, that's the thing about you said be you. And, and so I said, well, but what if you're an asshole? So uh, you, you don't collect people. It's very yeah. some people, you know, people are, I don't know, actually. Now, now you mentioned that. Um, I, I'm me yeah. when I do it yeah. because I'm not, I don't collect people with the intent of ex exploitation. I collect people that I think are interesting, eclectic, um, that I find interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't collect idiots mm -hmm. and I don't suffer fools. So, mm -hmm. and I've run into that situation as well where a few years ago there was an incident where I was at a restaurant opening, and the owners had given me a nice table. I was talking to a friend of mine, and they said, could this person sit at the table? And they were loud and obnoxious and stuff. And I was like, could you please not, you know. Sorry again about that night. I was having I know, an off but night. You were doing good. It's not, the, the point it's not was, my usual. The point was the person was like supposedly one of the young Turks, yeah. whatever, agent types. Yeah. And I'm like, I had them thrown off the table. Yeah. Now, I'm nobody. Make it very clear that I'm nobody. But this person was just being loud and obnoxious. Now, if, if a loud and obnoxious person sitting at a table, it doesn't really matter who they are mm -hmm. and their title. Going back to this thing, their title and their paycheck should make no difference about the way that you treat them. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, for some time they would see me at things and kind of try and square off and be like, oh, I'm like, you've got nothing I want. I don't care. Mm -hmm. because you're not somebody I'd want to be around. The people I collect are people I like to be around. Not that I get invited to anything anymore, but as you said, you know. If you're enjoying this one, let's go back in the archives and check out uh, an interview from early on in the show with my man DJ Adam12. He's a staple here in the LA scene, one of my favorite DJs, as well as one of Nico's. And, um, He's got some great stories just about what L.A. is all about and the evolution of the club scene and everything like that. So go back and check that out after you finish this one, of course. So the other thing that struck me, I remember that uh, L.A. Magazine article that, you know, at, at the time bragged that you had, you know, 8,000 people in your Blackberry, I think it was, or your yeah, Palm, yeah, Palm yeah. Pilot, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I remember that thinking, you know, how do, you, how do you remember everyone? 
How do you remember who to invite to what and when? Like, how do you keep in touch? Um, it's not easy. And interestingly enough, it's harder, A, as we get older. Yeah. And B, social media is an oxymoron because the more you're online, the less you're actually interacting with people. Sure. Right? So, again, this week's Grammy week, so you bump into people that you haven't seen for ages, but you think you have because you see yeah, them online. Um, you know, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. It is difficult. But you curate, like I curate, the objective is not to stay in touch with all 8,000 people. Because yeah. right? now on Facebook, I've, you know, I've maxed out at 5,000. <clears throat> but I don't collect randoms. And this yeah. is one of the irks that <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sure we talk about around social media. Mm -hmm. To me, an influencer is not somebody with 13 million followers who then gets 100,000 likes mm -hmm. because the math doesn't work out, right? Mm -hmm. So just because you troll and you collect millions of people, how does that make you an influencer? Because I believe uh, that, you know, quality versus quantity, you know, that I can have more of a social impact on an experience or a, somebody's product by identifying 100 of the right people. Um, we call it worm. So worm is word of relevant mouth, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. word of mouth is good, but word of relevant mouth is powerful. Mm -hmm. um, so every event is curated. Mm -hmm. And we, there's a process of thinking and discussing what is the, what is the essence of the, of the brand. Because it's no point inviting some of our people who are really into hip hop to a opening of a coffee company. You yeah. know, it, it doesn't yeah. make sense. Sure. So I think part of the art of curation is understanding, goes back to the DJ discussion, mm. goes back to understanding how to read a room, mm -hmm. okay? And how to curate a room that you don't feel, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? So I'm having an old person moment. Where there's not the separation of this one group over here, one yeah. group over here, nobody's talking to each other. Sure. I make a real, real strong effort on everything we put together, right? That there's this, this flow of, of a vibe that at some point everyone's going to have a point of reference that's going to make sense. So they'll be like, wow, this is great. Does it have the same effect for you? And mm -hmm. you get a conversation going because we've created experiences within the experience that will generate that sort of conversation. Yeah. Um, because it's about it's about people, right? You know, posting it on Instagram, does it help sales? In my experience, no. I mean, some people, you know, if one more person goes, yeah, but if a Kardashian posts something, it'll sell. Well, you take that post, plus, plus the tens of millions of dollars over the last 10 years that have been spent to build that brand. Sure. Great. Yeah. But somebody that's a quote-unquote fashion blogger that has... Tons of followers. Does it actually sell? There is no metrics, really. Right. Yeah. So yeah, what I've found with that is it's it's a, you know, I think, you, and we both work with with brands, and uh, you know, they play the numbers game. Yeah. Because they don't know, right? They don't know the people. Right. Personally, and they and they don't know, so they just go by the numbers, and yeah. and that's just a very you know comfortable framework for how you do marketing. Yeah. Right. And, you know, my experience is, like, it, it always depends. And I always say, like, you know, what your, the, the value of social media to a brand 
has more to do with who the brand is mm -hmm. before they got to social media. But the thing that I find fascinating and is being proved in our political uh, arena is it's not about demographics, it's about psychographics, yeah. right? Yeah. The more you understand what you have to say to that person rather than what that person's background is or, you know, it, it's, it's how you tailor that, that message to them. And unfortunately, we've seen it work extremely well, both in England and America at a... But, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying, but I think that is relevant to you because, again, you, you know, and I've been to dozens of yeah. your events and you see wealthy people and, you know, struggling. Right. Right, you don't see a specific demographic. A specific, and, and specifically for that reason, yeah. because I don't believe, I think, you know, why do you have that mix of people? Uh, like when we did an espresso, what, what, why was that a disparate group of people? Well, it's kind of like why Mercedes makes a C-Class and a 550 and a Maybach, right? Mm -hmm. Aspiration is just as important as, as create, uh, of having it, right? Yeah. So by having that group of people in a room, from my experience, I found that the very successful people say, I really love this party because there was the, these creative up-and-coming types that are, have fresh new ideas and right. it was really good sort of mingling with them. And the young, you know, up-and-comings go, oh, my God, it was great to be in a room with these legends and icons who were talking to me about what we do. And you, you see this connection of people. Yeah. And to me, that's what fuels me. Why do so, I do what I do? Is to watch people's faces. How do you sell that to brands, right, whose instinct in their training tells them demographics and, and metrics, right? Well, I, I don't know the best way to answer that because I've been fortunate and unfortunate that most of the projects that we've done in the last few years have, have been incoming. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm actually in the process of trying to work out that question in order to put the right sort of deck or they want it to go out there because luckily we I haven't cold called and I don't know the answer to that because yeah and I, it's and changing the way of people I thinking. think I mean you're kind of we're, we're in the same boat with that right and and I I always say um I'm not the guy to convince people that this is the right thing yeah to do. yeah right like I'm the guy that if you if you know this is the right thing to do That's I'm the one it. that can help you figure out how yeah. to do it the best and let's make it happen yeah. Right. And but, you know, if you I've had clients say, OK, sell me on, you know, why am I investing all this money in social media? I go, you know, if you don't know the answer to that, like, yeah, I'm not the one for you. Yeah. And um, and I, and yet that's hard, I think, as a business owner is, you know, you, it's hard to walk away from. Yes. From an you, opportunity. You know, it's it's tricky. It is a double edged sword because you get dangerously close to getting into that area that we were talking about that's not conducive right. to good business, which is, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't advertise what I do. You know, again, I'm, I've, I'm fortunate there's been, you know, there was a, an article towards the end of last year in Forbes about yeah. our destination stuff where I had two articles recently where they referred to me as the dream weaver, mm -hmm. which I kind of love. Mm -hmm. Because that's what it is. It's like, you tell me what you want. You tell me what your objective is, what you're trying to do, and I'll tell you how to get there. Yeah. But if I've got to convince you... Totally. How to... Because you're not going to like what I... Because my, my experience with when they've come to me and said, pitch us, 
the problem is they don't want, nobody wants you to tell them their baby's ugly, right? right? And with most experiences that I've seen where people who don't get it mm -hmm. have come to us and said, what do you think, how would you do this? First, we'd waste our time putting a big old presentation together. The second thing, and we make them pay for that. I'm not, we, don't, we don't do it for free anymore. Um, yeah. The other thing is when you've built a full marketing strategy for a brand and go, this will work, right? It's an integrated strategy. It covers your social media, your advertising. It covers your uh, live events. That's a reason these things happen. They have to work together. You can't start pulling slices of the pie out and expect it to be a full pie because they do that. They go, okay, this is great, but we just want to do that and that. Mm -hmm. go, well, yeah, but a wheel doesn't go around with just two spokes. Right. Oh, we don't want to spend that money. Well, but then you're going to lose yeah. three times that money yeah. because I will guarantee you, and I think you could probably say it as well, you can almost guarantee the success or failure of a brand launch based on that approach. I mean, I had something recently where, you know, you know, the short version is they they told me what they wanted to do. And I said, that's a half million dollars to yeah. do what you said. And they said, OK, cool. Well, what if we have 50? And I go, if you have 50, keep it in your pocket because yeah. you're going to need it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And like, I've, I've had that conversation with clients where we've told them how much it's going to cost. From, and I've said to them, so let's, as you said, so let's not do let's it. Let's not do it. I did have a good one where it was for a private client because we've, we've moved a lot more into the private client or corporate client with experiences. Yeah and less of the traditional marketing and stuff because of that reason. I think it's smart. Um, it, it's, it's a hybrid. I don't consider myself a traditional event planner because it's fabulous event planners. Yeah. We're, we experience curators because we look at everything, not just what's inside the room. We look at all the logistics, getting to and from it. It's yeah. So I, I want to talk about that for a second. You know, you talk about this attention to detail, and I've yeah. been to dozens of your events, and I've witnessed that. You know, I know for myself, I don't score myself very high on attention to detail, mm. except things I've learned along the way. Like I've, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, like I know a lot about permitting. Yeah. But it, only because we've had to. Yeah. We've had to figure yeah. that out, right? And and but I wouldn't say that that's a natural strength for me. Right. Right. And so I love it. Yeah. How, how does how does someone how do you do it? How do you how does someone learn that? So, again, I look at my history. Right. The thing that stands out is I'm a how it works guy. Mm. If I'm, right. I'm in here, if I'm in a studio, I'm going to fiddle around with stuff to find out how it works. Right. Yeah. Um, so for me, what I've learned is the devil's in the details. Mm -hmm. Right. So when somebody comes up with a big idea, it's actually down to some of the smallest things, from my experience, that can trip it up. So what I love to do is make sure that those little things right, are covered. Permitting, very important, but um, you know, I remember doing a gig. I mean, anything that's gone wrong or can go wrong has gone wrong. So that's totally. part of the, the yeah. experience, right? Um, I just love the minutia, because mm -hmm. the big idea is kind of the easy part. Mm -hmm. As you know, when somebody comes up with a big idea, that's that's great. Right. Now, how are you actually going to make that happen? Right. You know, yeah. um, and that's where the network comes in because mm -hmm. we've got really, really good resources for great permitting people. Great. So that goes back to the point of how we build the structure: is we look at what the overarching pro problem is, and then bring in the experts yeah. within that area that I'll oversee because I 
trust implicitly that they'll do their job. So one of the things I love about you is you, you know your superpower. I do. I mean, you, you, you uh, said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think so. But, you know, like all of us, I think we sometimes forget. Yeah. Right. And we see Love. some opportunity that looks great and maybe doesn't match. And and, you know, I've mm. I've made that mistake. We've had talks yeah. over the years. Right. And um, so I guess my question is that happens from time to time. How do you get back? From, from, from what? How, how do you like it? So, how do you, when, when you take a step that's maybe not yeah. the best for you, right? How do you then sort of regroup? You know, what wh what do you do okay. internally to say, okay, yeah. let me let me get back to what's really important. And, and I've had that a couple. I, I, you know, I tell you one of the things, and it's it sounds counterintuitive, but the first thing is don't do it for the money. Mm. My experience is that I've been hired a couple of times to go in-house right. with companies yeah. and they'll offer a lot of money. And in the conversation, they'll say everything I need to hear, which is you'll have a ton, you'll, you have people, da, 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 da. And I go because the paycheck's big, right? Mm -hmm. And it only lasts a few months before you realize that the politics within whatever yeah. organization is, it sucks the life out of you. Um, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult because you have to then trust that it's going to be okay. If you, you know, on the last one, I made it about, again, six months. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I had a private client who we were producing a, a, what I do. And I literally had that epiphany of like, oh, my God, I love what I do. I yeah. thought I didn't love it because yeah. I've been doing so long. So I went to, to go do something else. And I realized that the intensity and the detail and the the focus of doing a, an amazing experience for somebody and watching their face and listening to them have that reaction doesn't matter what it is mm -hmm. is what fuels me mm -hmm. and if we get paid for doing it good but if you put money first i think that's where you make the wrong turns yeah from my experience yeah um how do you get back um funnily enough people like yourself that you can pick up the phone and go, I think I want to kill someone. Yeah. And somebody else going, yeah, I know, I know that feeling. Yeah. This is how I got out of it. Sure. But uh, I think it's th the key to that is trying to stay true. It's very difficult. Stay true to what it is that you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, ba I'm back in that mode. Last year, was a, a, I, was, I slipped out of it. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing because when you slip back into, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm passionate about. And my job is to make sure other people have a great experience. Then it starts falling into place. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. La last year, I forgot what my purpose was. And subsequently, the door, nobody rang the doorbell. Mm -hmm. Then I had an epiphany of like, oh, but this is what I do. And then I stayed out of it. People started calling again. But, you know, I'll take anyone that wants to call. We're happy to do anything for <laughs> you. I'm a whore. <laughs> yes, I'll do it for the money. No. Um, I don't know if that helps. No, that sense. no, it does help because we all we all have those moments, and I think having people that you can call that may not have the answer, but at least you know have lived through it. Yeah, you know, I, I often say like the you know when I when I mentor people or or talk at mm. schools or whatever, like a lot of this is learning that stuff's not going to kill you. 
Right. Yeah. Because when you're young, everything feels catastrophic. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, you know, here we get to an age where you're like, okay, well, uh, you know. But again, that comes, that, that's the thing, you know, that's what experience and also time, that, that annoying thing about, you know, wisdom and age and stuff, you know. Yeah. We thought we could, and, and by the way, there is a real benefit to that because when we were young and we went, this is what we're going to do, we did it. Yeah. There was no, I don't know, can we do that? I mean, the logistics of that, it's going to cost money. And then what are the permitting? Brilliant. On that? We yeah. did it. Just do it. We just yeah. did it. And if it went tits up, then we were like, we won't do it like that anymore. Yeah. But we're still going to do that. Yeah. I think that's the biggest problem. As we get older and we have responsibilities and stuff, we stop. I think this for everyone. We stop remembering that whatever it is we want to do, we can do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm, it sounds super cheesy, but. Whatever you want to do, you can do, right? That's a way to make it happen, right? So, so that takes us to our, our speed round. Go for it. Um, so, but, you know, you, you kind of hit on it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this anyway. Um, so go back to 18-year-old Nico Ugh. and give him one piece of advice. <laughs> Step away from them. No. Um, uh, um, Oh, that's a good one, actually. What would you say? I would say, I think, you know, funny, I think it's not what I thought I was going to say. It would actually be focus. Mm. Because there was so much opportunity um, that I feel, you know, was squandered because the world was our oyster. There was no, it was just a different time in the 80s. and I think I'm a, I'm a generalist now, mm-hmm. which I'm glad I am, but I wonder what would have happened if I focused into one of the disciplines that I loved, because there were lots of stuff, yeah. you, know? Yeah. you know? If I continued producing records, if I continued in studio sure. instead of bouncing off. Yeah. yeah, I think that would be, maybe focus. Yeah. So this might be the same thing, but, but what was something you used to believe and then later realized you'd been wrong? Just because they say you can't do it doesn't mean you can't do it. Okay. Just because I come from a very English family, an English yeah. school where in England, in the boarding schools we went to, creative wasn't acceptable. Yeah. Those schools were designed for building leaders of industry, army. So you would literally get physically beaten up, mm-hmm. um, caned, whatever, if you had a creative idea. Yeah. Right? So I did not fare well at school. At one point, the headmaster goes, this beating isn't working, is it? I go, no, not really. <laughs> so yeah, don't believe what they tell you. Brilliant. What, um, what's a talent that you always wish you had more of? Hmm, um, funnily enough, I think it's cooking. Oh, wow. Yeah, because my mom was a great cook, yeah. and I used to cook with her, and I didn't... At one point, there would have been a complete divergence that they wanted to send me to hotel and catering school at one point. But uh, I'd say, yeah, you know... Or, or focus on my drumming, but that's just for, you know. That's cool. I mean, I could definitely see you uh, with a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, I don't no, know no, if I no. would picture no, no, no. you in the you kitchen. You know why? That's hard work. I well, can do the people part. Sure. Yeah, that's what I mean. But anyone you ask who owns a restaurant. Oh, no, it's, that it's is slog. The, that is hard work. Yeah. What other career would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? Um... Uh, 
Interesting. What career would I have tempted? Um, I don't know if it would be a different career, mm. say. I, I think I would have made a bunch of different decisions in the direction, early direction, had I thought, had I not had the mindset that we have as kids or as, you know, that, ugh, this will never work mm -hmm. or that I'm not right for it. Um, or helicopter stunt pilot. That's always been on the books. Yeah, that'd be pretty amazing. If you, if you knew you weren't going to die, that'd be Oh, I have, no be great. I, have no fear of, I have no fear of that stuff. I mean, you've seen the video that's running on YouTube at the moment of yes, me flying to, I think it was to Turkey, and we hit the worst turbulence I've ever hit. Yeah. And it's got about 700,000 views at the moment because yeah. they used it on news channels and CBS stuff. Yeah. And I'm laughing. I'm filming it. I'm talking to people. I'm having, because two things. A, there aren't that many planes that have ever come down in bad For turbulence. Turbulence, yeah. And if it did, yeah. uh, you, there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. So I don't have fear of heights. I don't have, I don't have, my fear structure shifts a lot, mm. you know, so. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so if I worked for, for Nickel Network, what would I hear you say over and over? Uh, <laughs> um, Oh, that's okay. Um, I think it'd be attention to detail. Mm. It, you know, I find that with people, you know, I, I'll send them back to focus on finishing stuff because it's 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 all in the detail. Yeah, um, that's why I couldn't work for Nick. No, not. To, but you know, but go, the thing that I'm working on at the moment is because I'm trying to put together a new team. Is yeah. is finding people in this town that are, and this will sound like such an old man's thing to say. But people who really want to work, it's very hard to find people in this town sure. at the moment yeah. who really want to work or learn, yeah, learn a craft around, yeah. especially what we do, which is the other people. I, yeah. yeah, it's like, because I hear myself with people that are working for me going, go back and do that again. And it's so tedious because, yeah. you know. So this is an interesting one, I think, for you because so I know you have so many famous friends and, and call me. interesting people around you. Um, and I often meet people who, you know, people go, how do you know Nico? And it's like, because everyone knows Nico. Um, uh, but so who would you be most excited to learn was a fan of yours? Anybody <laughs> at this point. That's a really interesting question because uh, again, it comes back to being English. We're so self-deprecating <laughs> that the thought of somebody actually thinking that is would be great. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's weird. You find it uncomfortable? Though? Yeah, incredibly. Yeah. I don't like talking about myself. Yeah, yeah. So this is that's why, why we had you here. So this is why this is really difficult because that's why I'm waffling and stuff. No, that's brilliant. I don't like that, and I'm not very good at taking compliments. You yeah. know, so but I would love to know if people uh, yeah, sure. have been to something we've done and think it was good. I yeah, love that you know. I was in this. I suppose the articles are good, but. Yeah, how how do the, I meant to ask sort of how do those change the game for you? Like especially the early ones, you know. Well, um, it, I suppose it validates to a certain extent, so that people will call. Uh, what movie have you seen the most in your life? Ah, okay, so uh, that's quite easy. That's two. I'd say it'd be, and I'll. I know I'll never live this down, but every time it comes on, I'll watch it continue. Um, Fifth Element. Okay, that's not bad. 
Blade Runner. Yeah. Uh, I think those are my two. Oh, and Shawshank Redemption. Is those are the three Fantastic. that if they come on, like yeah. the classics like Scarface, right, right, right. you know, those sort of things. But for some reason, if those ones yeah, come on, you just watch it. I don't know what it is yeah. about Fifth Element because yeah. it's yeah, it's good. Yeah, I get it's it. That outfit that yeah. she's wearing. And uh, favorite DJ? What's your handle? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know what? Do I have a favorite DJ? Um, I love what Adam does, you know, yeah. Adam 12, but I don't, I don't have a favorite DJ um, because I think they all, I, I love yeah. such eclectic stuff, you know. Different people do different, yeah. yeah. I, I don't have but we often find ourselves enjoying Adam 12 together. Yeah, just because yeah. he's, again, he's a DJ that reads a room. Absolutely. And plays to the room. Yeah. Whereas Adam, uh, you know, AM, yeah. played his set. Right. And, you had, and I love totally. mashups, but he played his set. Of course. If you liked it, you liked it. If you didn't, you didn't. Yeah. You didn't care. Dude, thank you for doing oh, this. No. This is brilliant. Total pleasure. Uh, so much fun to hear the stories. Where does everybody find Nico Network online? So Nico Nico Network dot com. That's N I C O yeah. Network. Nico Network dot com. And so, is there a social? Are you? Is there a place where you're particularly active on social? Um. Well, at the moment, that's an interesting question because. There is a Nico Network Facebook, but the Nico Golfer Facebook is more active. Okay. And my own Instagram. I. Yeah, I no, not particularly, because I don't know if what I do. Yeah. We're working on that, which ironic after this conversation about social. No, I get I it. don't think for what I do, yeah. it's the necessarily the right medium, but we're working on that. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Awesome. Okay, that's a wrap. That was Nico Gofar. Uh, make a lot of money and then hire Nico to produce all your events and do cool stuff for you. In the meantime, leave us a comment on Twitter, Facebook, uh, iTunes, whatever you want. It's Rebel Radio Net. And make sure you come back next week for more Rebel Radio. <laughs>